What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Well, greetings, my friends, patriots, lovers of democracy, truth and justice, believers in peace, freedom, and the American way. Tom Hartman here with you. To begin our program, our old buddy Julio Rivera is with us. He's the editorial director of Reactionary Times, contributor to Newsmax, American Thinker, and Townhall.com, ReactionaryTimes.com. His Twitter handle, oh yeah, Y-E-A-H, oh yeah, it's Julio Julio, hey, welcome back, my friend. It's uh, it's good to have you. It's been quite a while since we've talked. How are you? Where are you? How's life? What's up? Well, you know, I'm just getting used to saying President Biden, which was uh, kind of a difficult thing for me. But, you know, he's, uh, you know, the president of the United States right now, whether or not uh, it was as justified as uh, the mainstream media would like to portray it to be. Um, but we have to deal with Joe Biden as president for at least the next four years. Yeah. Are you still living in Europe? Uh, yes, I am. I actually am in uh, Europe right now as we speak. Cool. Okay. You know, I don't want to get into your private life on the air like that. I just, I just, you know, it's uh, we've known each other for years, and I just I wanted to touch base with you. We probably should just have a phone call one of these times. So uh-huh. I'm curious your thoughts about how. Well, uh, you know, I published an op-ed over at TomHartman.Medium.com suggesting that if the Democrats fail to use this impeachment hearing to blow up this Republican big lie that they've been using for 40 years to disenfranchise, to prevent black people, Hispanic people, people who live in cities, younger voters and Social Security voters from voting to make it harder and harder and harder to vote. We have over 200 pieces now of voter suppression legislation that have been introduced into 26 state legislatures just since Donald Trump lost the election. That if this big lie is not blown up, you know, four out of five Republicans right now are open to the idea or believe that Donald Trump actually won the election. Uh, If that big lie isn't blown up, I'm concerned about the future of our democracy. I'm curious your thoughts on that. Well, I mean, um, you know, there were a lot of things that were kind of um, different about this past election. I, I think we can all agree with that. And I think that, you know, the Democrats have long had a history of uh, engaging in things like ballot harvesting. Uh, the Democrats are always opposed to things like. Yeah, well, hang on just a second yeah, here. I mean, What's, is a what is ballot harvesting? Thing. 
What is ballot, ballot harvesting? harvesting? The way that it was, the, the way that it is manipulated a lot of times is when people go ahead and take the ballots of people who are not maybe able to execute their vote personally. And they go ahead and collect this. These are DNC operatives. They collect large numbers. There was actually a situation in Texas, in Harris County, with Dallas Jones, who was a top Biden operative. They had engaged in a ballot harvesting scheme, and they were intent on gathering as many as 700 to 800,000. So, so hang on just a second. Let me get this straight. We... We know that in, I believe it was in North Carolina, and I know you're familiar with this, a Republican operative was going around and actually buying ballots from people that weren't filled out and filling them in for Republicans. He got busted for that, and I believe he's in jail right now. But Good. in many states, it is quite legal for people who are shut in, for people who are, you know, just, you know, just for general convenience, for people from either political party, now, some states have made this illegal, and, you know, I don't have a problem with it being legal or illegal, but, you know, to go around and pick up the sealed envelopes that would otherwise go in the mail and transport them to the Secretary of State's office, you can call that ballot harvesting if you want, but there's nothing nasty about that unless they open the ballots and change them, in which case it's a felony. And I guarantee you, Julio, if that had happened, if, they, if any of those ballots had been changed in Texas, Greg Abbott would have those people's asses in jail in a heartbeat. So let's stop using this kind of bizarre rhetoric as if there's something skeezy it's not, going it's not on here. Really bizarre rhetoric. I mean, listen, there was a special election in Patterson, New Jersey in June of last year where they found out that 20 percent of the uh, ballots were in question because of issues related to, you know, fraud. It and, generally and, happens and there was no in fraud democratic fund. ran cities. No, wait, wait a minute. Let me finish, Tom. It generally happens in democratically ran city minority minority areas. You had I, I remember in Georgia in particular, they took and I don't know why the, the Georgia GOP allowed this, but they said that they weren't going to actually test the signatures. They weren't going to pass the signatures through any verification. That is not what happened, Julio. Problem. As you just said, you don't know if that happened. I guarantee you it didn't. In fact, Raffsenperger, no, the, uh, the Secretary of State in, in Georgia, has is on the record saying every signature of every uh, mail-in ballot was verified. And they ran three so, really light so, audits. So I guess the bottom line here is that you're going to continue to promote this Republican vote. big lie? Is that, is that what you're I saying? I don't that, necessarily believe it's a big lie. This was a very tight election. I think there were irregularities in several swing this states. This was not a tight election. Joe Biden won by 7 million the, votes. The election to President Trump, or at least changed the Electoral College. Yeah, let's I get mean, rid of the Electoral believe, College. What happened question, to democracy? Forget, forget all of this. Forget all of this. Let me just ask you one basic question. Should there not sure. be one standard that every state abides by for national elections, for the president, for Congress, for the Senate, various states want to use whatever thresholds they want to in, to validate votes because it's their state elections, whether it's for their, you know, for their uh, legislature or for their governor or their, you know, county and, and, and municipal level races. They can do what they want, but there should there not be does that not fall under equal protection that we should have one standard for national elections? 
You know, I completely agree with you. And thank you for the ad for the Democrats HR1. I mean, that's what it will do is it will establish those national standards for presidential elections. And I think we can agree on that, that that states shouldn't be allowed to mess with votes. I mean, you know, Jeb Bush should not have been allowed to throw 58,000 African-Americans off the voting rolls, you know, weeks before the election who had not committed any crime at all. They just had a name similar to a felon in Texas. That should have been a crime, Julio back in 2000 uh, right <laughs> i have so many other things to say to you but uh we have we're short on time so yeah we are and we'll continue this conversation julio it's nice to have you back on the program i look forward to future conversations julio rivera editorial director of reactionary times he uh, contributes to newsmax american thinker townhall.com reactionarytimes.com twitter oh yeah it's julio julio thanks this thank you so much tom, tom. hartman program yeah great talking with you Ricky in Missoula, Montana. Hey, Ricky, what's on your mind today? Oh, hi, Tom. Yeah, I wondered why can't in this as part of the recovery plan, why don't the Democrats just, you know, be go full bore and ask for and put in the the plan a single payer plan or Medicare for all to relieve um, the pandemic because of. You know, when you think of the long haul effects and all the people that have been affected by it or may in the future be affected by this or variations of it, is there a way that they could just put it in the bill and pass it? You, Ricky, you have identified something that in theory makes perfect sense. You know, budget reconciliation, they have basically one chance, arguably two, but definitely one chance to pass one big piece of legislation um, with only 51 votes, with, with uh, 50 votes plus Kamala Harris. And, and it has to be done through a process called budget reconciliation, which means that the parliamentarian of the Senate has to agree that every single item in that bill has to do has a direct impact on the budget. Um, and Medicare for all would certainly have an impact on the budget. And I think it could be passed by reconciliation. The downside, of course, is reconciliation. Anything passed by reconciliation it automatically expires in 10 years, first of all. Although I think that it would be renewed because by then it would have success. But secondly, the problem that the Democrats have or that Chuck Schumer and, you know, has right now is that there are a few Democratic senators who are not in favor of Medicare for all. So if you were to put Medicare for all into this, you know, $1.9 trillion bill and turn it into a, you know, $5 trillion bill or whatever, you would lose Joe Manchin almost certainly, Kirsten Sinema, and perhaps a few others. I'm thinking there's probably at least five or six so-called conservative Democrats who are taking so much money from the health insurance industry, the hospital industry, the physician industry, the medical device manufacturers industry, and the big pharma industry, all of which collectively have something like, you know, three dozen lobbyists per senator that it couldn't pass. And so they wouldn't add it in because they're afraid that that would blow up that bill. Does that make sense? What if they put it in and it didn't pass and then they just reintroduced the whole thing without it? How hard is that? Well, I think right now what Schumer and the Democrats are looking at is that one in six children in America, one in six children who live in a rental household are going to bed hungry right now. Some numbers indicate that it's one in five that, you know, we've got at least 10 million people who are unemployed simply because of COVID. 
We're adding about a million people to the unemployment rolls every week. And there's a crisis. I mean, just a, a screaming crisis. People are losing their homes. They need to extend the moratorium on foreclosures and things like that. And if they don't do this stuff soon, there's going to be just an absolute human disaster. And I think that they would be accused of basically you know, playing politics. So those are my thoughts on that, Ricky. I thought because they didn't pass one last year, they had two that they could put through this year. They may. They may. And if that's the case, then, you know, Medicare for all and a few of the other wish list things on the Democratic agenda would be great because I'm, I'm with you. Medicare for all does tie into this pandemic. People are getting sick. They're running up huge hospital bills that they can't afford. Ricky, thank you. And welcome back. Okay, so my point, the point of my daily rant over at medium.com is that bottom line, there is a big lie here that is actually what should be being litigated. And I'm going to be watching very carefully to see if this gets, if this actually gets argued, if it actually gets litigated, if the Democrats actually use this opportunity to expose the Republican big lie that this moment is being used. Over 200 pieces of legislation in Republican-controlled state legislatures all across the country specifically, specifically making it harder for people to vote, requiring, you know, banning no-excuse mail-in ballots, you know, absentee voting, making it illegal. You have to have a doctor's excuse, and we have to see that, and it has to be notarized, and and it has to be approved by the Secretary of State, you know, just slashing mail-in voting. Here in Oregon, it's 100% mail-in voting. Same in, same in Washington State. I think Utah is like that. I, I could be wrong. Hawaii, I believe, is like that. We have had this for 20 years, all mail-in voting, and it works just great. But the Republican big lie that is used to, to justify voter suppression, well, you just heard Julio talking about, well, you know, in those uh, black communities, uh, I mean, he was saying, you know, urban communities. And I, I don't mean to pick on Julio here. He's not here to defend himself. I probably shouldn't have even quoted him. In fact, I shouldn't have. My apologies, Julio, if you're still listening. But that big lie has been used for 40 years or longer. Actually, it was in the early 1960s that William Rehnquist, this big bear of a man, started Operation Eagle Eye in Arizona specifically to suppress the vote of Hispanics and Native Americans. He would stand at their polling places. He and this little army of lawyers that he recruited, Republican lawyers, they'd stand at voting places and loudly challenge the right to vote. Are you legally in this country? I don't believe it. Let me see your, you know, and fill in the, that's just a birth certificate. You can fake that. I want to see the passport. And, you know, just harass people while they were in line to vote until they just gave up and went away. He was so aggressive about that, and Operation Eagle Eye was quite successful, actually, that he ended up the Chief Justice of the U.S. Supreme Court. The Republicans loved him for it. <clears throat> this is how they've been you know, gaining their electoral victories. It's Jim Crow all over again. Instead of stopping black people from voting by saying, how many jelly beans are in that jar? Or please recite the Constitution backwards. 
Now they're saying, uh, well, you know, we'd like to see three pieces of ID. We'd like to see proof. And oh, by the way, you didn't vote in the last election. Somehow you got magically taken off the voting rolls. Well, you know, you have no right to actually be on the voting rolls. I realize it says you don't have a right to vote four different times in the Constitution. And the Motor Voter Act in 1997 specifically says everybody in America should have a right to vote. But we're going to deny that to you because, well, you know, you're black or you're Hispanic, or you're young, you're a student. Oh my God, students vote for Democrats. They're liberals, don't you know? They go to these colleges, oh my God. Or, uh, you know, you're over 65, in fact, you're over 70, and you no longer drive, and so your driver's license, you know, you let your driver's license expire, and uh, we're only going to accept driver's licenses that are current. So Social Security voters, people like my my 95-year-old mother-in-law, uh, you know, you can't vote, sorry. Tough luck. Oh, excuse me. I believe she's 90 now. I'm going to have to double check. I shouldn't have said that. So, but I mean, that's, that's where these guys are going. This is full out voter suppression. And that big lie was latched onto by Donald Trump back in 2016 when he lost the national popular vote to Hillary Clinton by 3 million votes and came right out and said, no, no, those were Mexicans in, in, you know, illegally in the United States in California. They're the ones who cast those 3 million votes that put Hillary Clinton over the top, which was a lie. It's an absolute lie. There is no evidence of that ever happening in any consequential way in the United States. George W. Bush had all of his federal prosecutors looking into this for two years, spent $74 million. He was able to come up with 31 cases of voter fraud. None of them were Mexicans who were not citizens. Uh, Several of them were Europeans who were voting Republican. The rest of them were people who lived in states where it's illegal for felons to vote and they didn't realize it and they voted and their votes got stopped. He didn't find any, I mean, you know, it was just like the uh, lieutenant governor of, uh, I believe the lieutenant governor might be the uh, attorney general of Texas said, I'll offer a million dollar award to anybody who can prove voter fraud. And in Pennsylvania, they scrubbed it. And the secretary of state of Pennsylvania found two guys who had registered their dead parents and voted in the name of their dead parents for Donald Trump. 100% of the dead vote in Pennsylvania, both of them, went for Donald Trump. That's how widespread voter fraud is in the United States. It's, it's so rare, it never affects elections, but hey, it's a great excuse to make it tough for people who live in cities to vote, because we don't want them voting, do we? Sometimes Louise and I just crave a restaurant-quality dinner at home without doing all the work or driving. Well, Cook Unity is the first chef-to-you service delivering locally sourced meals from award-winning chefs right to your door every week. And it appears to be less expensive than other delivery options. Go to cookunity.com slash Hartman, the two N's, or enter the code Hartman, the two N's, before checking out for 50% off your first week. We just received our first meals from Cook Unity. And what a huge difference it is to get the best chefs in the country to bring creative, delicious meals to us and you every week. Every meal is handcrafted by chefs and made in local micro kitchens, not large production facilities. We just had the chipotle maple glazed salmon with green beans and mango pico de gallo. It had everything we love in a meal. They have all sorts of options like vegan, paleo, pescatarian, gluten-free, and more. Menus are posted two weeks in advance so you have plenty of time to choose. 
Experience chef-quality meals every week delivered right to your door. Go to cookunity.com slash Hartman, the two N's, or enter the code Hartman, the two N's, before checking out for 50% off your first week. That's 50% off your first week by using the code Hartman or going to cookunity.com slash Hartman. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Today's book in our book club is The Hidden History of the War on Voting, Who Stole Your Vote and How to Get It Back by this guy, Tom Harbin. Uh, this is from chapter one, or from the introduction, actually. In 2016, 6% of Americans who were eligible to vote nominated Donald Trump as the GOP's presidential candidate. It was 8% for Hillary Clinton on the Democratic side. Trump went on to be elected president by 26% of eligible voters. The modern American oligarchs have largely stayed in power using three simple elements. Explicit overt racism, massive disinformation campaigns, and voter suppression. No ideas, no push for better schools, hospitals, airports, roads, or bridges, or reform of our health, energy, or financial systems. No promise of more and better jobs. None of these staples of past presidential campaigns can be found in pretty much any Republican advertising today. Instead, the public Republican message is all about race, or the subset of race, religion. Muslim stands in for brown Arab in GOP speak, and immigration, a.k.a. brown people from south of our border, and socialism. Meanwhile, Republican secretaries of state across the nation are vigorously purging voters from the rolls. Over 17 million, more than 10% of America's active voters, in just the 2016-2018 period, according to NBC News. After the five Republican appointees on the U.S. Supreme Court gutted the Voting Rights Act in 2013, 14 GOP-controlled states moved within a year, some within days, to restrict access to the vote, particularly for communities of color, students, and retired people. In North Carolina, for example, 158 polling places were permanently closed in the 40 counties with the most African-American voters just before the 2016 election, leading to a 16% decline in African-American early voting in that state. An MIT study found that nationwide, Hispanic voters wait 150% longer in line than white voters, and black voters can expect to wait 200% longer in line to vote. In Indiana, then-Governor Mike Pence's new rigorous voter ID law caused an 11.5% drop in African-American voting. Students are suing for their right to vote, and retired people who no longer drive but care passionately about their Social Security and Medicare are being turned away at the polls by the hundreds of thousands because their driver's licenses have expired. The obvious failure of 40-plus years of Reaganomics and GOP policies to maintain a functional middle class in America has been a problem for the modern GOP. In 1974, for example, the GOP had outright control of only seven states. The message, elect us and we'll help the rich people, just didn't generally resonate with American voters. It's the reason why, outside of the fluke elections of 46 and 52, Democrats controlled the House of Representatives outright for three generations, from 1933 to 1996, and controlled the Senate for most of that time. 
desperate to win the presidency for the GOP in 1968, Richard Nixon went so far as to commit treason by torpedoing a peace deal with President Lyndon Johnson that President Lyndon Johnson had worked out with the North and South Vietnamese. According to Abul Hassan Bani Sadr, then president of Iran, Ronald Reagan did the same thing by cutting a deal with Iran whereby they would hold on to the U.S. embassy hostages until after the 1980 presidential election, torpedoing Jimmy Carter's chances of re-election. But in 2000, the GOP changed tactics. After Reagan was almost busted for his part in Iran-Contra, he testified that he had forgotten about details of the program more than 80 times. His growing Alzheimer's spared him an indictment. They realized that getting busted for treason wasn't worth the risk. They needed a plan B. And it was deliciously simple. If most voters don't like what you're selling, then just don't let them vote. Paul Weyrich promoted this idea back in 1980 when he was campaigning for Reagan after co-founding the Heritage Foundation. And indeed, many Republican luminaries, such as William Rehnquist, who went from serving the GOP by standing in polling places and intimidating Hispanic and Native American voters in the 1960s to becoming Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, rose up through the ranks by participating in Republican-run voter intimidation schemes. Voter suppression became the foundational go-to tactic for the GOP in 2000. Although the GOP attacked Democratic presidential nominee Al Gore with smear and innuendo, ridiculing him for helping write the legislation that created the modern Internet, for example. The main thing that got George W. Bush into the White House was voter suppression. His brother, Florida Governor Jeb Bush, and Bush's Secretary of State, Catherine Harris, threw somewhere between 20,000 and 90,000 African-American voters off the rolls. They were able to get the vote close enough that five Republican appointees to the Supreme Court functionally awarded Bush the presidency. The BBC covered this in 2001 in two major investigative reports that were seen all over the world, except on any American media. By 2016, the Republican Party had fine-tuned its voter suppression and intimidation systems to the point that they ran like well-oiled machines in nearly 30 states. Between the 2012 and 2016 presidential elections, for example, Ohio had purged more than 2 million voters from its rolls, the vast majority, more than 2 to 1, in heavily African-American and Hispanic counties. The five Republican appointees on the Supreme Court ruled in 2017 that they could keep it up. And other states have since adopted their new tactic of caging voters. The book, The Hidden History of the War on Voting, by me. So uh, let's, let's see here, just for comparison purposes, I'll lay this on you and then I'm going to pick up your phone calls. When President Barack Obama, when Barack Obama was president of the United States and had made Hillary Clinton his secretary of state, in two separate budgets, the State Department argued that they needed more security for their foreign outposts, particularly the ones that weren't full-on embassies, the ones that were, I think they call them stations, which would have included the station in Benghazi. Twice they asked for additional money and twice the Republicans said, no, you can't have State Department, you can't have that security money. Then the, the, the station in Benghazi gets overrun, two State Department employees, a CIA guy and a security guy get murdered. And how do the Republicans respond to this? Well, five different House committees, the House Committee on Oversight and Government Reform, 
the House Committee on Foreign Affairs, the House Committee on the Judiciary, the House Committee on Armed Services, and the House Committee on Intelligence. Every single one of those five different committees held hearings on Benghazi and whether or not Secretary of State Hillary Clinton had any role in the death of those four people. All of them ultimately concluded, no, she had nothing to do with it. It was you know, because we Republicans refused to authorize funding for security for Benghazi. The Senate had two committees. This is all bipartisan. Two committees, the Senate Committee on Homeland Security and Government Affairs, Senate Committee on Intelligence. In both cases, the Democrats were like, there's nothing here. The Republicans were like, there sure is. We're going to find it. They even created a special House Select Committee on Benghazi and dragged Hillary Clinton in, who testified for more than eight hours. Four people died. So now we have an actual insurrection against the United States of America, an, attempt, an attempted coup, an attempt to, to hang, to assassinate the Vice President of the United States, to murder the Speaker of the House and other people involved in the process of counting the electoral votes so that the electoral vote count could be disrupted and Donald Trump could declare himself dictator for life. And we're all very clear on this. And how many House committee investigations have the Republicans called for? Oh, yeah, none. How many Senate committee hearings have the Republicans called for? <laughs> none. Have the Republicans asked for Donald Trump to come in and testify under oath for eight hours? Oh, no, we can't have that. Are you effing kidding me? And now Mitch McConnell is saying, you know, uh, I refused to allow a trial in the Senate while Donald Trump was still president, even though the House referred it to, or was willing to refer to it, to it to us. And because I refused to allow that hearing in the Senate, that trial in the Senate while he was president, and he's now no longer president, this is unconstitutional. Right, Mr. McTurtle. Sean, and I guess I shouldn't make fun of people's appearance. Let me stop that. Sean in Albion, Washington. Hey, Sean, what's on your mind? Hey, Tom. Oh, you know, one of the things about you know this last election is the Republicans, of course, as you said, they're going to go on and try to subjugate voting rights, and they and they created a mess. It is typical of Republicans create a mess, point to the problem they created, claim they have the solution. But you know, even in states like Washington State, where I live. Uh, you know, which is mail-in voting. Uh, they're attempting to get at that, too. On my county newspaper, and I live in a fairly bluish county, but a conservative bought the paper a while ago, and he owns several papers in eastern Washington. And he's been running these editorials and slanting things towards conservatives. He ran a big editorial shortly after the election about how he misses you know, going in and voting at uh, polling locations and how it really was good for the communities and blah, blah, this and blah, blah, that. And the real thing is it's attack on mail-in voting. He's trying to get that sure. nose under the tent and try to get people thinking, yeah, that's true. It is kind of un-American that we don't go and see face-to-face. -face. In reality, what he's, you know, he knows that it generally works better for Democrats when people have mail-in voting. But uh, this is their first attempt at getting at it because we've had it for years, and he's trying to sow discontent with it. And it's something to keep an eye out for. You know, in other states where we have Republicans of greater hands, they're definitely going to just go to town on this. And I'm afraid the larger media is just not going to pay attention because for typical Republicans, they do it a little bit of a time. You know, they get in there, little things, little here, little there, little there, and suddenly, you know, you have a whole Republican county government or town run by Republicans or state run by Republicans. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's, it's a bizarre argument, Sean. I mean, I've been voting for probably about 50 years and 
I don't recall ever having a conversation with anybody while I was waiting in line to vote. You don't do that because, you know, it's it's uh, it, not just against the law in many places, but also, I think, kind of socially inappropriate to to strike up a conversation that might lead to politics. I mean, you say hi or whatever, but but uh, this isn't like you know going to the square dance at the fairgrounds or whatever. This isn't this isn't some sort of big public uh, event. It's not like going to a town hall meeting. It's you know, geez, we got to. I've got to find out where I vote, and I got to drive over there, and I got to find a damn place to park, and and then I got to walk over and get in line, and I you know all the. I mean, who wants to do that? Well, Republican crazy. claims are rarely fact-based. I mean, almost all yeah. the things they cite for better government, they can never point to any country in the world where their ideal of government is working to the benefit of everybody in that country because those places don't exist. And so similar yeah. with these claims, they're going to claim this last election was a debacle. They created the debacle. All the problems were Republican created. But people will forget and they go, yeah, that was a mess. That went on for months. Yeah, we probably need to do something about that. So yeah, this happened out in Florida. In 2000, I mean, they, you know, and they use that as the justification and for the Help America Vote Act, which, right, and, and the fact right, which made it harder it came to vote. Afterwards, no one paid attention to, and then we have, yeah, you know, um, the great le- legacy of, of Bush Jr. Anyway, thank you. Have a good day. Yeah, thanks, Sean. I'm with you, Judy in Hot Springs Village, Arkansas. Hey, Judy, what's on your mind today? Hey, Tom, uh, the impeachment trial. <laughs> yeah. Um, I got curious today because we, you know, they keep saying it's unconstitutional because he's not in office any longer. So I looked up the Nixon impeachment trial. It was on the History Channel. Anyway, I posted it all over Facebook. But in 1974, August 8th, Nixon announced his resignation and left on the 9th. And then, of course, he was exceeded by another Republican, Vice President Ford who pardoned Nixon on September 8, 1974, which made it impossible for him to be prosecuted. Right. And maybe that's the uh, factor that's missing in the Trump thing, because he's not been pardoned. Yeah, it, 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 it could be, but, but their argument that you can't hold a trial, an impeachment trial for somebody after they've left office has been badly blown up. I mean, for example, when Ulysses S. Grant was president, he had a secretary of war, and my apologies, I don't remember the guy's name, uh, but his secretary of war behaved so egregiously. Now, this was immediately post-Civil War, so a lot of people were paying attention to what we today call the Defense Department. And I believe it had to do with, you know, cutting slack in the southern states, but I could be wrong on that. It's been a long time since I read that. But Congress was going to impeach Grant's Secretary of War. And this guy ran over to the White House two hours before the vote for impeachment was to be held and submitted his resignation to Grant saying, you know, please accept my resignation. They can't impeach me now because I'm no longer in office. And they went ahead and impeached him anyway. And it was a substantial margin in the Senate. It was something like 35 to 23, as I recall. It was in that neighborhood. And that's not the only case, but that's probably the most famous case of, you know, the United States Senate impeaching a federal officer 
after they've left office. Specifically, you know, because if, specifically for two reasons. Number one, to accountability, accountability and justice, to hold somebody responsible for crimes committed while in office. And number two, to prevent them from ever serving in office in the future because they're obviously a corrupt person. And, uh, you know, we, we just really need to, uh, you know, need to take that to heart. Judy, thank you for the call. Carlos in Los Angeles. Hey, Carlos, what's up? Hi, Tom. You know, Biden has really impressed a lot of progressives and definitely impressed me. I think the pressure from below is really catching up to the dance and they need to keep up that momentum. But what I wanted to discuss today was what I read on LA Times, tucked into the COVID-19 relief bill is a proposal which could provide nearly all Americans, American families with monthly checks of up to $300 per child only for the 2021, but Dems aim to make this change permanent. I mean, this is something visible. This is something that, if they pass, can really help Democrats moving forward. Yeah, I'm not familiar with that, Carlos. I think you may be talking about the supplement to unemployment insurance, which only applies to people who are... Oh, the child tax credit is $3,600. Yeah. yeah, that goes to everybody. That is that is politically brilliant. And uh, and Mitt Romney proposed 3000 right, as a child tax credit. So, you know, yeah, let's stop child poverty in America. Carlos, thank you. to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. Quick math, the less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. With higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, all into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. It's accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com slash Hartman. That's netsuite.com slash Hartman. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Sean tells me William Belknap was the uh, Secretary of War under Ulysses S. Grant, who got impeached after he left office. And uh, you know, the United States Senate was just fine with that. The Supreme Court didn't weigh in or anything else. And, you know, here we are. All righty. Uh, let's pick up some more, some more of your phone calls here. John in Los Angeles. Hey, John, what's up? Yeah, Tom. And, you know, one thing about Belknap, don't even equate him with Trump. I mean, the guy, the guy was a veteran in five wars. 
And he and he mm. did what Trump did on a daily basis, but he was nowhere near as despicable as Trump. Believe me, he wasn't a treasonous yeah. uh, son of a bitch. But anyway, do you know what Belknap uh, specifically did to get himself impeached? I, I'm sorry, I've, yeah, I've he, forgotten. Uh, well, he had two wives, uh, and he was throwing lavish parties, and he uh, he was taking bribes, and they were wondering how he could live on eight thousand dollars with his government that's salary. Right. It was so that's bribery. In trouble. Yeah. But at least he had the you know. At least he knew he knew wrong, and and he. He went crying to the to the house for repentance, you know. But I mean, he, yeah. he, he, he he was also in five different skirmishes. I think he was ballot a medal or honor from Congress. Yeah, he, he fought he in five different five battles he, in the in the Civil War yeah, on, on behalf a, of the Union Army. Yeah, he wasn't just a pimp from New York working for the Russians. But anyway, right. um, what blows my mind is. They didn't have that the opportunity to call witnesses when you know the first impeachment, the treason right. trial. There's a guy that works in the White House for Trump, who was, you know, quoted as saying he couldn't believe Trump admiring the mob, you know, attacking the White House, and not he had the authority to call the National Guard. I believe I think it had to go through him. I'm not 100 percent sure, but then you got. Flynn's brother, Flynn's brother, who was in charge of the National Guard. I mean, this stinks to high heaven. And if this is just going to yep. just be whitewashed, you know, just for, you know, why is he even having a impeachment if he's just he's going to call no witnesses and he's just going to put on what everybody saw on TV? I mean, we need to shame these Republican senators for history, you know, to to really put it in their faces what they're really going to attach their name to for the rest of their life, you know, not and not let it blow over like. I'm with you, John. And my concern is that this is not something that Donald Trump did all by himself. And a couple of hundred people in the U.S. House of Representatives and uh, well over a dozen, at least a dozen people in the United States Senate participated with him in this fraud. And many of them are continuing to participate with him in this fraud. Thank you for the call. Peter in Dotham, Alabama. Hey, Peter, you're on the air. What's up? Well, thank you, Tom, for taking my call. I wanted to uh, discuss a little bit about more of a positive voter identification. And, you know, this is it won't happen anytime soon, but I think it would allow a lot of the uh, uh, suppression and everything else if we went to maybe like a, some kind of like fingerprint ID where you could just do it online and do it from your home. And then would also allow you to participate, like in stuff in legislature, legislation, if if they wanted to see what the people wanted to say about it. We, we've been doing that for my entire lifetime. I don't know when it began, Peter, but um, it, it, biometric identification, which is what you're describing, is how voters are verified or have been historically. When you first register to vote. And, and I, I, I remember as a kid, you know, seven years old, sitting there in the elementary school, watching my mom flip through the card catalog that she had, this little box of cards, and, and pulling out a person's original voter registration card and comparing the signature on that card that they signed when they first registered to vote and proved their identity, comparing that with their signature as they sign into the voter registration book to make sure it's the same person. It's easier to buy a fake ID than it is to fake somebody else's signature. The signature verification is biometric and, and only you know, one in a million people, if that, can successfully fake somebody else's uh, signature, particularly when they're being observed. But even, even when you know, they're but, not. Yeah. 
Yeah, even if he went to like with a, a finger, you know, a fingerprint or your thumbprint where you could like. Yeah, do it the at problem home, with that, Peter, like, is that that's going to create hysteria among those civil libertarians. And and by the way, I include myself in that batch who are concerned about the government in getting more and more intrusive in our daily lives and our personal lives. I, you know, I, I get you know that you're trying to find a way to kind of compromise with the Republicans. Um, the fact of the matter is, signature verification works. It has worked for you know, as I said, for my entire lifetime, or at least since I was seven years old, and probably long before that. And all this other stuff, you know, bring two kinds of ID and prove, you know, this and that and the other thing. These are all just ways to try to slow down the process, to try to make the lines longer, to try to discourage people from voting. To, to, and, and particularly, the, you know, the, like in the states where it, you can't use a student ID, even though it's a state college and they verify your identity and your citizenship before they even admit you as a student. Um, you know, the, the, these are just attempts to keep young people, old people, and particularly black people from voting. And I think we need to acknowledge it as such. Peter, you know, keep thinking. I mean, you know, it's, it's good to come up with ideas. I, I really appreciate that. And thank you for the call. Morris in Long Beach, California. Hey, Morris, what's up? Uh, you, Professor, now check this out. Now, regarding that January 6th riot, we're going to call it a riot. Is it possible for the D.C. lawmakers, they got city councilmen, I mean, they got somebody making laws over in there, can they bring some charges against the former president? And the evidence that they could use would be the evidence is going to be provided by this impeachment trial to show that there was a crime. If he's not convicted because of political overtones in Congress, I understand that, but can the government, the, the public government, can they bring charges against him? I know if I was down there talking like that, they'd have had me arrested, but can they bring charges against this guy right now? I'm talking about the former president for what happened on January the 6th, and I'm talking about the government or the lawmakers of Washington, D.C. I believe, although I might be wrong, because they did march down a public street but I believe that most of the crimes happened on federal property that over which the city of uh, the District of Columbia has no legal jurisdiction. You know, the Capitol building, the, the, the ellipse. Pardon? How about the Attorney General? We don't have one now. I know the Attorney General could step in there and do something. He works for the federal government, don't he? Yes. Yes, okay, he does. So and the second step will probably be bringing him up on 14th Amendment charges. You know, pointing out that uh, the—I believe it's the Fourteenth Amendment, maybe it's the Fifteenth Amendment. One of the one of the two that was passed after the end of the Civil War says that, you know, no person who incites a rebellion against the United States is eligible to hold office. And the evidence is so overwhelming that I think that in some other sort of proceeding, and this is going to probably have to be litigated by the Supreme Court exactly how that amendment to the Constitution gets authorized that Donald Trump can be banned. Actually, you know, it says at the very end, it says Congress can pass legislation to implement this. So maybe Congress needs to pass a law saying Donald Trump can't serve, although maybe that would have a hard time getting through the Senate. I don't know. But, you know, Morris, I like the way you're thinking. And I'm, I'm astonished, by the way, that New York State or the federal prosecutor in New York State, the Southern District of New York, has decided that after putting Michael Cohen in prison, for paying off Stormy Daniels, they're not going to go after individual one Donald Trump. Back to you, Morris. Oh, Morris, I'm sorry, we're out of time. My hope is that the Democrats do this in a way that clearly just, you know, tells everybody what's going on. Today we're reading from the Constitution Today by Akhil Reed Amar. It's a collection of essays. This is from his essays on the judiciary. This was originally published on Find Law in 2002. It's titled More on Unfree Speech. 
The Supreme Court prohibits network television cameras and radio microphones from its public oral arguments. Transcripts of the back and forth between attorneys and the justices are not posted on the court's website until weeks have passed and the public's interest has waned. Members of the public may not even take notes in the gallery about what is being said in open court. Meanwhile, in its opinions, the court trumpets the importance of free speech and a free press. On the topic of free expression, why doesn't the Supreme Court practice what it preaches? That was the question Steve Calabrese and I recently posed in an op-ed in the New York Times marking the opening of the Supreme Court's term earlier this month. Here I'll expand on the court's reluctance to welcome the First Amendment into its own courtroom. The First Amendment is the darling of the current court. Though sharply divided on many other issues, justices across the spectrum agree that free expression rights should be construed broadly. But the court's love affair with that First Amendment is a relatively modern development. Less than a decade after the adoption of the Bill of Rights, circuit-riding justices enthusiastically enforced a 1798 sedition law that made it a federal offense to criticize the president. Early in the 20th century, the court upheld punishment of a newspaper publisher for editorializing against state judges. During World War I, the justices sent Eugene Debs, a notable presidential candidate, to prison for peacefully criticizing the government. Indeed, before 1925, the court had never, not once, used free expression pr principles to invalidate government censorship, even as it routinely construed property rights broadly to invalidate economic regulation. Today's justices have repudiated this regressive legacy, but the residue of the early court's indifference to free expression remains visible in the court building itself, as the aforementioned rules and practices indicate. Perhaps these court rules and practices do not literally abridge freedom of speech or of the press, but if not, they sure come close. After all, the apparent purpose of these rules is precisely to limit free expression and free thought. Consider the rule, uh, the rule against note-taking. A person in the courtroom can clean his wallet or twiddle his thumbs or tug his earlobe or engage in countless other mindless activities, but is prohibited from engaging in the cognitive and expressive activity of writing down what he hears the justices saying along with his own comments or questions or criticisms. Consider also the rule against the media's cameras. The court's rules do not bar security cameras in the courtroom, and such cameras may well be in the room for all we know. What the justices are banning is thus not cameras per se, but network television cameras, cameras that might broadcast information about the court to the American public. The harms that these rules seek to prevent are harms that pivot on the acts of thought and expression themselves. And these are the very sorts of harms the government typically may not seek to prevent under the Supreme Court's standard First Amendment case law. To put the point another way, no Supreme Court rule bars carrying a pencil into the courtroom or wearing a chopstick in one's hairdo. The ban is not based on security concerns but is rather directly aimed at expressive activity per se, using one's pencil to take notes. More generally, one of the core purposes of the First Amendment is to protect a robust and timely public discourse about government officials and government decision-making, including, of course, judicial officials and judicial officials' decisions. But that discourse is precisely what is dampened by the court's own rule about its own building. This is especially so because the day of oral argument is one of the two days the other being when the final Supreme Court decision is announced, that the American public and the American media are most likely to focus on a given legal case. If discourse that day is dampened, the public has lost a unique and irreplaceable occasion for democratic discussion and deliberation. 
When it comes to other government arenas, post offices, airports, school grounds, and so on, the court has typically insisted that such forums allow as much speech as is functionally compatible with the basic purpose of the arena. Yet in its own building, the court represses expressive activity without any strong showing of incompatibility or disruption. There is a word for this, and it is spelled H-Y-P-O-C-R-I-S-Y, hypocrisy. The court's transcript policies are also unfree in another sense. In the days after oral argument, the transcripts are anything but free. The court gives a temporary monopoly to a private company, which in turn charges high fees for transcripts. The court would never, nowadays at least, give a private company a monopoly over its written opinions. Why should its oral arguments be treated any differently? There's nothing secret or confidential about oral arguments. Unlike judicial conferences where justices deliberate privately among themselves, oral arguments take place in open court. They are public events conducted by public servants with public money. The public deserves full access. To recast the point in the language of federalism, Americans outside the Beltway deserve electronic access comparable to the ability of those who live in Washington, D.C., Virginia, and Maryland to attend arguments in person. If television cameras are not acceptable, at a minimum, the arguments should be carried live on public radio, as happened in December 2000 for Bush v. Gore, and transcripts should be freely available immediately. The book is The Constitution Today by Akhil Reed Amar. Welcome back. Tom Harbin here with you. On the line with us is uh, former state senator, Colorado State Senator Ted Harvey. He represented District 30 from 2007 to 2015, and he is the chair, the chairman of the Committee to Defeat the President. The website is stopjoe.com. His Twitter handle is Ted Harvey. Ted, or Senator Harvey, welcome to the program. Glad to have you with us. Well, thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. My pleasure. First of all, before we get into the issues here, just reassure me. I went over to your website, stopjoe.com. It asked me for my email address and information. I gave that, I clicked through, and it took me to a page where it said, please give us money. I, I didn't see anything about issues. I didn't see anything about positions. I didn't, you know, that's all, I've, that's all I could see. Reassure me that your site is not just a, a money-making scam like Trump was running after he lost the election. I, I can assure you that we actually started our pack in 2013 as the Stop Hillary pack, and we, I believe, we became one of the most influential packs in the country to make sure that Hillary Clinton never stepped foot in the White House again. And then when the Trump won the election in 2016 and, and was sworn in in 2017, and we saw the Democrats having. Uh, temper tantrums, if not riots, on the street of America, streets of America all across the country, we uh, changed the name of our PAC to the Committee to Defend the President, and we became one of the largest pro-Trump PACs in the country, and uh, we have one of the largest followings with uh, hundreds of thousands of, of members that um, help us put pressure on the Democrats and, and win elections around the country, and uh, when Joe Biden got sworn in on January 20th. We changed the name of the pack to the committee to defeat the president, not the committee to defend the president. And um, we okay. are, our goal is to make sure that we push back on the Democrats for another four years and to try to save our culture and our constitution and our conservative values. 
Okay, I got it. And you've got my email address now. Uh, I'm, I've, I've signed <laughs> up, so I look forward to getting your emails. So the piece that we got from you or from your office, you know, suggesting you as a guest for the program basically said that Joe Biden is promoting some sort of radical left agenda and it's going to destroy America. Correct me if I'm paraphrasing incorrectly. I'm curious if that's the case. How specifically do you see Joe Biden and the Democrats working to destroy America you know, and the, the principles that this country was founded on? Well, I think that um, our country was founded on the rule of law. I think our country was founded on um, the fact that we are a capitalistic free market economy. Um, I think that the policies that the president has been pushing just in the few weeks that he's been in office through his executive orders are going to harm America and harm our our sovereignty. You look yeah, but that's all, that's all, with, you know, Senator board. Harvey, respectfully, that's all kind of vague rhetoric. Specifically, right. what, what policy, give me one policy, and then we can move to the next and the next if you'd like. But give me one sure. policy that Joe Biden is pushing that you think is going to destroy America. Well, when he said that he was not going, that when he told the ICE and, and the border security folks to, to not check the the legal status of anybody that they are catching and to let them go and to um, stop the construction of the border and divert the, the money that was appointed for the construction of the border wall. I think that's very detrimental to our sovereignty as a country. Um, I think if you look at what he's doing with regards to energy and saying that he is not going well, let's, to let's take these one at a time. Let's let's stick continue. with the border wall and, and immigration and then we can go to energy if you'd like. Sure. So I'm assuming that your concern is not that you're some kind of wild right wing racist who hates the idea of brown people coming into the United States and perhaps finding a path to citizenship or something like that, that that probably your concern is more economic. You don't want jobs going away or, you know, I mean, what? First of all, I, I don't know that Biden has said to ICE, no, you can't. You can't identify people, you know, and yeah, we have a border wall. But we also prior to the pandemic, we had a million people from Mexico coming into the United States every single day. And we had about a million people from the United States going back into Mexico every single day. We have an enormous amount of trade, traffic, and tourism that goes across that border legally. Um, I mean, the guys who, who hit us on 9-11 came into this country legally on tourist visas. Um, you know, so you've got a lot of, you know, the majority of people who are in this country illegally. Let me just finish my thought and then you can go however, you know, whatever you want. The majority of the people in this country who came here illegally did not cross the Rio Grande. They came in as tourists and stayed and and they got employment. I mean, you've got meatpacking plants up in the up in the north that were printing help wanted ads in Spanish in newspapers in Mexico. So if your concern is about the economic impact of these folks, then why would you support Republican policies that go back to Ronald Reagan in 1986, where he officially stopped prosecuting employers who hire people who are in this country illegally? I lived in Germany for a year. It took me six months to get a damn work permit. I worked in Australia. It took me three months to get a work permit. Those countries you know, if, if you hire somebody who's not in the country legally, you go to jail. And that was the case in the United States before Reagan suspended that. Why are Republicans opposed to putting employers in prison? I'm not. I think we should be. I, I think that we should be enforcing I mean, is, the laws. Don't, of this don't you think that? I mean, it, I mean, Mitt Romney ran on this in 2012. He said, you know, if, if we simply started enforcing these laws, 
against employers, against wealthy white employers hiring people who are here illegally, you would see people, quote, self-deport. He was ridiculed for it, but I think he was right. History shows he was right. And how is a wall or ice, you know, grabbing people going to stop millions of tourists coming to the United States from staying if they can get gainful employment? I agree with everything you just said. I think that we should be enforcing the laws. We should be penalizing employers. When I was in the state legislature here in Colorado, that was one of my number one objectives as a state legislator. Then and, why won't Republicans I, I go along with should. it? Because I mean, Bernie Sanders have, and Sherrod Brown have been singing this song for years. I mean, literally decades. And Republicans constantly fight them on this. Not all Republicans. I'm one that agrees with them on that issue. I, I believe that we are a nation of laws and we should be enforcing the laws. And if people want to come here legally, regardless of their color, red, yellow, black or white, we should have the ability to check out their medical backgrounds, their criminal backgrounds and determine whether they are going to be a benefit to our society as, as a sovereign country. So we if we simply did that, Senator Harvey, then the, all this hysteria around the border wall and ICE would become pretty irrelevant, wouldn't it? But we're not. And we, are, we have an open border where people are flooding well, through our borders, and we don't know what their background is or, or what their intentions are when they come to this country. And that is one of the main reasons why we need to have a border wall, because it is a sieve. And people aren't doing that from all over the rest of the world. We are able to check all of their immigration paperwork before they come here. Why should we not be doing that on people that are flooding across? Because it's ineffective. I believe we should. Because it's used, it, because it's used by racist demagogues. It's ineffective. Uh, anyhow, I, I, you know, I, I'm sorry. I, I, I hope I you're not calling you me a the racist last demagogue. No, I'm not. But I'm saying that the, 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 this whole border wall playing. argument and let's let's ignore the employers is used by racist demagogues. Senator Ted Harvey, he's the chairman of the uh, committee to defeat the president. StopJoe.com. Senator Harvey, thanks for dropping by. Thank you, buddy. God bless. Have a great day. This is the Back at Tom you. Hartman program. James in Lexington. Hey, James, what's on your mind? Thanks for watching us on Facebook. Hey, Tom, Live. Long time. First time. Um, one quick point. According Thanks. to the AG's website, Monty Wilkinson has been acting AG since January 20th. Right. Yeah. Sean tell, told me that. I'm sorry. I should have uh, corrected, uh, you know, let people know that. I, and, I'm, and I'm scratching my head about why Joe Biden doesn't just appoint Merrick Garland. Maybe he's just hey, I, saying, I you know, we're going to go through the way. process. Yeah. Do you know anything about Monty Wilkinson? I've, I've, I've never really heard of him. Yeah. Okay. But at, 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 presumably he's not a Republican troll, so maybe that's a good first step. I also had a one question. A few years ago, you like to talk about a clip that was on CNBC about a wealthy German guy that was freaking out the CNBC anchor because he said, I like my high taxes because I'd rather be yeah, a rich man in a wealthy country. I'm pretty sure. My Google food's not bad, but I, I can never get that quote to pop up anything that says something like that. Yeah, it really was like just I, it was I, just something that flew by on TV. It, uh, to the best of my knowledge, it was never put on the internet or made into an internet meme or anything. I wrote about it at the time, but not everything that happens on TV, particularly on the more obscure programs. This was literally the middle of the night. It was out of Singapore, as I recall, or maybe Hong Kong, and uh, that the show was you know running, and there was some sort of a conference going on, and maybe there's something about the conference, but. James, I got to run, but thank you for the call, and uh, thanks for watching us there on Facebook Live. It's great to hear from you.
been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. Save on Cox Internet when you add Cox Mobile and get fiber-powered internet at home and unbeatable 5G reliability on the go. So whether you're playing a game at home, yes, cool, or attending one live, no! you can do more without spending more. Learn how to save at cox.com slash internet. Cox Internet is connected to the premises via coaxial cable. Cox Mobile runs on the network with unbeatable 5G reliability as measured by Ookla LLC in the U.S. to H2023. Results may vary, not an endorsement. Other restrictions apply.